Well, as you can see, as you can see from the title of the message, I have chosen a very positive title in honor of Valentine's Day. That was intentional. No, no, just the general vicinity of Valentine's Day. It was recently, wasn't it? It's in the past, a couple days. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. This morning I want to share with you a message that is not intended to be a divorce seminar. And, and yet at the same time, I'm going to try to break up some marriages. None of the marriages that are represented by any of the couples here that are visible to any of us. But nevertheless, we need to sever some ties, as you're going to see as we move on. I want to begin launching into the message by sharing with you the story of a woman named Linda. I hope nobody named Linda is here. Actually, I know there is one person named Linda here, but I'm just, this is just the lady's name. I can't help it. So Linda was the kind of girl who always wanted to be married. Ever since she was a little girl, she just wanted to be married. She had no career aspirations, no professional or educational aspirations. She just wanted to grow up and get married and have a family. Any ladies relate? Anybody at all since you were a little girl? Not a single solitary woman. I hope that's not an evidence of what came after. But Linda was like this. She just wanted to be married. She grew up. Next thing you know, she was 18. Then she was 19. Pretty soon she was 20 years old. And she was longing for love. And finally, she met a man whose name, by the way, was Herman, which was very convenient if you think about it because he could be referred to as Herman. That's right, Sandra. And lots of little details like that were falling into place. And so she was certain that he was Mr. Right, that he was the guy that she had been longing for and looking for. And finally, as the weeks turned into months and the months went by, three, four, five, six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, Herman dropped to one knee and he said, Linda, will you what? Will you marry me? Are there more beautiful words to be spoken by a man? The women are so uncertain this morning. <laughs> Will you marry me? And of course, Linda said, what do you think? Yes, I'll marry you, Herman. Yes. And the wedding day came, and it was picture perfect. Everything came off exactly the way it was planned. And they slipped away after the reception, of course, to their private getaway for the honeymoon. And then, the morning after, the first day of the honeymoon, Linda woke up at 5.30 a.m. with the sense that somebody was standing over the bed looking at her. She opened her eyes, she focused, and, oh, it was just Herman, that's all. And just as she was about to say, good morning, Hermie Kettles, that was the name she <laughs> came up with for him. Just as she was about to say good morning, Herman said, up, up, the honeymoon's over. 
And Herman, with excitement and enthusiasm, presented to Linda the first of many lists of her duties and activities planned out for her. He was such a nice guy. He didn't want her to have to think about what to do. He wanted her to know exactly what to do. Anybody married? No, I won't. I won't even ask. And so Herman presented her with the first of many lists, and I just happen to have an authentic copy of one of these lists right here. And as Linda sat up in her bed, she read with astonishment, 5.30 a.m., rise and shower, 6 a.m., breakfast preparation, see attached menu, 6.30, awaken Hermie cuddles with a gentle kiss and proceed to turn the shower on for him. 6.45, serve breakfast, parentheses, don't forget the grapefruit juice. What a guy, huh? 7.15, breakfast cleanup. 7.25, meet husband at door with appropriate jacket in hand. In parentheses, pay attention to the weather, baby. 8 a.m., and she was so thankful for this. 8 a.m., free time. 8.15, house cleaning. 11 a.m., balance the checkbook. 12, noon, have lunch, in parentheses. Anything you'd like, sweetie, except for the marked items. 1 o'clock, Mondays, car maintenance. Tuesdays, dry cleaning and laundry. Wednesday, shopping, list attached. Thursday, wash the windows. And Friday, yard work. He would throw in later on with more developed lists. Sunday, because they were Sabbath keepers. Sunday, clean the garage. And she wasn't thankful for that. And then, 4 o'clock, Dinner preparation, 4.30, meet husband at door with a smile and a kiss. Everything was so choreographed, just so perfect, right? 5 o'clock, serve dinner, 5.45, dinner cleanup, 6 o'clock, oh, praise God, free time. (laughs) 6.15, draw bath for husband. 7 o'clock, hand husband towel as he exits the bath. 8 o'clock, neck and back massage for husband. 9 o'clock, lights out, and in parentheses, pleasant dreams, sweetheart. And she, after a few months, and then a few years of this, wasn't thinking pleasant dreams. She was thinking horrible nightmare. That's what this is. What did I get myself into? And the years went by. Until finally, Hermie Cuddles, after 10 years of marriage and less, Herman dropped dead from unknown causes. (laughs) Hallelujah. And Linda didn't know what to do because on the one hand, it was appropriate to grieve. You know, just to grieve. But she didn't have any grief. She felt guilty because 
Every day that passed without another list, she felt so free. She felt so liberated. And she vowed in her mind two things. Number one, that she would never get married again. Do you blame her? She would never get married again. Number two, she vowed that she would take martial arts lessons (laughs) for future possible necessity and protection. But then as the years went by, three years, then four, then five, Linda met another guy who in some ways was, was reminiscent of Herman. I mean, the good traits. But then she was nervous and she shut down emotionally and she backed up and the friendship was going nowhere. And then finally, as the friendship blossomed and flowered into the beautiful thing that she had always hoped she would experience. Michael, the new guy, what do you think he did? He dropped to one knee and he said to Linda, will you marry me? And she said, absolutely not. (laughs) But on second thought, with a ray of hope in her heart, she said, yes, Michael, I'll marry you. And the wedding, a simpler wedding this time, but it came off again picture perfect. Then the honeymoon, and it was a nice place. And then, what do you think? The first morning after the first day of the honeymoon, Linda woke up in a panic at 5.30, sat up in bed to see Michael standing at the end of the bed with a piece of paper in his hand. She jumped up into karate stance, snatched the paper from his hand, ripped it in two, threw it to the ground, and said, no way, buddy. And Michael said, what's wrong, Linda? I've been up for an hour writing that poem for you to express my love. And just after you were going to read it, I was going to serve you breakfast in bed. She felt so bad. That's right, tell him. <laughs> she felt so bad, she, she got the two pieces in hand and she, she pulled it together and she read this, this beautiful expression of Michael's love. And the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months and the months turned into years. And finally, after 10 years of marriage to Michael now, one day Linda was in the attic of their house rummaging through some old boxes. And she came across an old shoe box that immediately sent stress straight through her body because she knew what was in that box. She opened it up, and sure enough, it was a full box of those old lists from Herman. She pulled one out, she began to read, and something incredible dawned on her. She said to herself, there in the privacy of her own thoughts, she said, wow, I do these things, not all these things, but I do, not the garage, not the shopping list, not the windows, no, not all these things, but it dawned on her, she said, I do these things very kinds of things for Michael, and he's never given me, what do you think? A list. 
And it dawned on Linda that she was truly in love and had found the man of her dreams. Romans chapter 7 is the story that Paul told from which the slightly embellished story that I just told you is drawn. Romans chapter 7. Take your Bible in hand or your iPhone or whatever you have and look at Romans chapter 7. This is absolutely incredible what the Apostle Paul teaches us here. Our goal this morning is to understand the difference between two very real kinds of spiritual experiences or relationships with God. And I wonder if you'll identify with one or the other or both. In chapter 7 of Romans, the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 1, says, notice the language carefully, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So the first thing we need to notice is that Paul is addressing a particular audience. He is addressing, what does it say? Those who know what? What do they know? They know the law. They are familiar with the law of God. They are familiar with the Ten Commandments. These are people who are aware of the law of God. Now, who might that apply to in a modern setting? You're not sure. Can you think of a church, a denomination, a movement that knows the law? Okay. So Paul's principles, what he's about to unpack here, is very applicable to us. Notice verse 2, he gives his own little version of the Linda parable. He says, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. We understand this, right? You make marriage vows, and there is the binding law of marriage. You're married, you've made a commitment, and Paul is saying that the woman who is married to a husband is bound by the law to her husband, as long as he what? As long as he lives. But notice the second half of verse 2. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. What is he saying now? Well, she's bound by the law, by the covenant of marriage, by the civil law and the religious law that has bound them together in the commitment they've made. She is bound as long as he lives. But if he dies, then what? She's free to marry somebody else, legitimately. By law, she's free to marry somebody else. Verse 3, so then, while her husband lives, if she marries another man, she will be called a what? An adulteress. She's breaking the law, the moral law of God, and the civil law of her time. She'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she marries another man. So do you see in Paul's little story, there are two possible husbands. In fact, there are two husbands. There is the first husband that we are married to spiritually. He's dealing with our spiritual experience. He's dealing with the quality, the kind, the nature of our psychological and emotional and spiritual relationship with God. And he's saying there's the one husband and that one husband that we're married to is the law. And you can't marry somebody else as long as you're bound to 
the law. So he goes on to give his explanation. Look at verse 4 now. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become, notice the language, dead to what? Dead to the law through the body of Christ. That is, by the, by the crucifixion of Jesus, something happened in which we now as human beings, we are invited into a relationship with God in which we, in some sense, die to the law. Why? Look at the latter half of verse 4. That we might be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So who is this? Who's the second husband? The first husband is the law. Who's the second husband according to Paul? Christ, Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again. Now, what is the difference between these two kinds of spiritual experiences or these two kinds of relationships with God? Okay, look at verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, that is, when we were carnal and unconverted, before we were born again, before we gave our hearts to the Lord, okay? When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Paul's a little complex sometimes, isn't he? But basically what he's saying here is that when we're in the flesh, before we're converted and give our hearts to the Lord, the law actually stimulates more disobedience. Have you ever said to your child, I'm just going to be out for a few minutes, whatever you do, do not look in that cupboard because there are yummy cookies in there and they're not for you. As soon as you leave the house, what has your command, what has your law achieved? He can't take his eyes off the cupboard door. He knows there's something gratifying behind the door, and he wants it desperately. So that when you impose the prohibition, you're actually stimulating what? More desire to have the thing that's been forbidden. Are you with me so far? That's Paul's thinking. The law stimulates, he says, the sinful passions. Now watch what he says further. This is so mind-blowing. Look at verse 6 now. This is the punchline for Paul. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve, notice this, so that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Oh, wait a minute. Paul is downloading some very, very deep and serious and beautiful theology into our thinking here. He's basically saying that when you try to relate to God for salvation through the law as your primary medium of perceiving God and relating to God, that you will continue in the cycle of sin. You will continue failing and falling. You'll make promises to God. Lord, that was so horrible what I did. I did it again. I did it again. But Lord, I promise I'll never do it again. And this is what one author calls making promises to God that are like ropes of sand. You can't get yourself off the ground with a rope of sand. The idea is very, very simple. If you relate to God for salvation primarily through the law, you will never be able to break the cycle of sin and guilt and shame in your life. 
you'll just keep heaping more shame and more guilt upon yourself and more moral weakness and more failure and more promises to God and more failure and more guilt and finally you'll just give up in despair and say, I guess it's not for me. All of those other church people, they must be having a great experience with God, but not me. I fail over and over again, and then I feel guilty again, and I just can't take the guilt anymore. Do you know that most people, polls have been done, leave the church not because they don't believe it intellectually anymore. They can recite the doctrines and tell you that they believe the facts and the figures, the data. They believe the theology still. People don't leave because they don't believe it intellectually anymore. They leave because they don't feel it and experience it in their heart. On a relational level, they know all about God. They know all about Bible doctrines, but they don't know God himself. So there's no marriage. There's no wedding. There's no intimate connection with the Lord. There's just the list of do's and don'ts and the list of theological tenets and an intellectual, formal, religious experience that is not sustainable. You can sustain it. Some people can sustain it longer than others. Some people will just occupy the seats in the church forever. They'll never go anywhere. 20 years will pass by. 30 years will pass by. 40 years will pass by and they've never known the love of God in their own hearts. They're just going through the motions of religious formalism and reading the list and trying again and feeling exhausted by all of it, but hoping against hope that maybe by the skin of my teeth I might be let into heaven when I die. That kind of relationship with God is characterized by approaching God through the law. But then Paul says, wait a minute, there's another, there's another possibility. You can die to the law, that is, die to the law as a primary medium of relationship with God. In other words, remove all sense that I have to obey the law in order to get God to love me. I have to obey the law as merit in order to earn salvation. If you cease thinking of obedience to the law as brownie points, as smiley faces for good behavior and frowny faces for bad behavior, I don't know if you do that in the schools here. It's a terribly psychologically hurtful way to educate children, but that's not my topic. So... If you relate to God on the premise of trying to earn his favor through obedience to the law, you will continue to spiral out of control spiritually and finally give up in despair. That's Paul's point. But he says, wait a minute, there's another option. You can die to that entire merit system, that entire way of thinking in which love is conditional, that entire way of thinking in which, in which merit gains ground with God so that you purchase your standing with him. If you will cease thinking and feeling and emoting and relating to God in that way, Paul says you can get married to Jesus, that is spiritually, in your mind, in your heart. You can relate to God through Christ. And when you relate to God through Christ, Paul says something remarkable will happen in your experience. He says you will, verse Five, bear fruit to God finally. You will become fruitful. You will become a flourishing, fruitful Christian. 
And then in verse 6, where he makes this contrast, he says that you will no longer serve in what he calls, it's complex language, we don't know what Paul's talking about unless we probe it a little bit. He says, you will no longer relate to God or serve God or obey his law in oldness of letter, but rather in newness of spirit. Do you see the difference between those two things? He's saying the law will no longer be the letter of the law, a list that is imposed from the outside in. The law will be something that is written in your heart, and you will obey God from the inside out. It is all the difference in the world. It's the difference between living your Christian experience under a heavy sense of duty and obligation and ought versus being head over heels in love with God so that you desire the things that God desires. Your heart has been knit with his at a deep spiritual level, so your value system becomes his value system or vice versa, you grammar police. Okay, so you begin to relate to God on the premise of love and matrimonial attraction. I'm in love with Jesus, therefore I serve God from my heart because I want to, not because I have to or else. My salvation and purchasing my salvation with obedience to the law is no longer the issue. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you that as you grow and mature in your experience with God, that your personal salvation will become of less and less concern to you. And your major concern will be to love and to honor and to please and to glorify God, whatever he says. You'll have a whole different framework that you're operating from in which you are in love with Jesus as a new husband and you are serving God from the heart. Now, turn to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea, that's in the Old Testament. Hosea, it's right after Daniel. Most of you know where Daniel is. Just go to the book of Hosea, which is the next book after Daniel. I'm waiting because I want you to see this. You want to lay eyes on this yourself. If you don't have a Bible, pay attention to somebody who's in your vicinity. Just look over their shoulder and, and look at what it says here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Hosea is a living parable of a very strange kind. Now, I want to say this. Listen very carefully as we prepare to read what we're about to read. All the other prophets of the Bible were simply given prophetic visions in dreams, and then they would write down what God had showed them in a vision or a dream. So they received prophecies. Hosea is different. Hosea was made a prophecy. God said to Hosea, chapter 3, verse 1, he told Hosea to do something really bizarre. He said, starting with verse 1, then the Lord said to me, to Hosea, go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Do you see what God just told him to do? He said, Hosea, I want you to fall in love with uh, her. She's the one. Now, Hosea, you're going to discover that she is pursuing lots of other liaisons. She is the kind of woman who pursues other lovers. And I can imagine that Hosea is thinking, Lord, that's not the kind of girl I was hoping to marry, Lord. I was looking 
forward to marrying somebody who would be faithful, but God has a point. God says, Hosea, I want you to marry that unfaithful one. That's the one I want you to marry. And then what are the first two words after the comma? Go love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, comma, next two words, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. What has God just done? He's created a living object lesson, a living parable. He said, Hosea, he said, I want you to fall in love with that woman. She's going to commit adultery over and over again. And Hosea, I want you to just keep on loving her. She's going to hurt you. It's going to be painful. But Hosea, your assignment is keep loving her. Keep pursuing her. Keep loving her. Why, Lord? And then the Lord says, Hosea, this will be just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. Hosea, when you feel what it feels like to love somebody with every fiber of your being, only to have her not love you in return. Tell my people that's what it's like to be God. Tell my people I love them like that, and when they don't love me in return, it hurts, Hosea, the way you feel this pain in this relationship. In a crowd this size, there are definitely people here who have experienced the horror of this kind of rejection. There are people sitting here who have loved somebody only to not be loved back. And in that experience, God is saying to Hosea, that is God's emotional situation. I love you, but you don't love me back. So what's God going to do about it? Well, he's almighty God. He can just force them into subjection, right? He can force his people to obey him. Well, maybe he can force them to obey him, but let me ask you a question. Outward obedience can be forced. I mean, with enough power, with enough manipulation, with enough coercion and pressure, if you're big enough, if you're powerful enough, you can force somebody's behavior, yes or no? Yeah. But can you force somebody to love you? Can you force somebody to trust you? Can you force somebody to be your friend? Can you force somebody to feel affectionate toward you? No, because the moment you exert any form of force, coercion, or manipulation, right, the one you're pursuing with those tactics begins to back up. Because we intuitively know that force and love are mutually exclusive. They can't occupy the same emotional space. Anybody who's been in a relationship knows that control extinguishes love. And God knows this because he's the one who created us after all. He knows how we work psychologically and emotionally. So what's he gonna do? He's almighty God. He can just force us into subjection, right? Wrong. So loop back to chapter two and look very carefully at verse 14 where God says that his MO, his modus operandi, the way that he will go about saving Israel and ultimately by object lesson, the way he will go about saving humanity as a whole, you and myself included. He says in verse 14, therefore behold, I will, what does your version say? I will allure her. What does it mean to allure somebody? Give me a synonym for allure. I will, I will sway. Okay, what else? Seduce. Come on, this is the Bible, bro. Don't be throwing the word seduce in there. No, this is a godly kind of alluring. 
okay? So to allure would be to attract, to, to, to draw, right? Now, now, where there is an attraction, follow this reasoning very carefully because this is the, this is the key principle of the gospel of Christ. Where there is an attraction, there is something or someone who is attractive. In other words, attraction only occurs if there's beauty that's drawing the one who's attractive, attracted. So God says, the way I'm going to, don't miss this. God says, the way I'm going to save you is not by forcing you, not by manipulating you, not by guilting you into subjection. I'm not going to use shame. I'm going to save you by alluring you. I'm going to save you by attracting you. I'm going to present to you the beauty of my love for you, and that love in and of itself will be the powerful influence that will draw you back to me. In other words, God is choosing to operate on the principle of attraction rather than on the principle of force or coercion. He's aiming high. God wants something incredible. He doesn't want your mere outward compliance while there's rebellion in your heart. I remember the story of a school teacher who had a rebellious little boy in class. And he was standing up when all the other students were sitting down. And the teacher said, sit down, Johnny. And Johnny said, no. And she said, Johnny, sit down now. He said, no, I'm not sitting down. Johnny, sit down. No. So she put her hands on his shoulders and pushed him down into the seat. And he said, I'm sitting down with my butt, but I'm standing up in my mind. (laughs) Sometimes we say that a person persuaded against their will is of the same opinion still. And we're on to something. The old covenant, as it is called in scripture, is the law of God imposed as an external list that you must comply with in order to be saved. The law of God, as it's understood in Pauline theology and in the new covenant, is the law of God written in the heart so that you begin to love the things that God loves because you love God. So you're not only in compliance with your butt, or what do you call it over here, your bum or your, your boot, or what do you call that thing? Okay, your bum, okay? So you sit down with your boot, your bum, your, your butt, so you're not only in compliance physically, but where are you in compliance? In your heart, in your mind. You love the law of God because you love God. And that's his value system of relational integrity. You don't violate people. You don't violate the relationship with God. So he says, I'm going to allure you. Now, just prepare yourself to be absolutely blown away by where God is taking you and me. I am urging you by the grace of God to prayerfully and intentionally move in this direction in your spiritual experience. You're in chapter 2 of Hosea. Now look at verse 16. Now Hosea gets to the bottom line, or God gets to the bottom line, and the Lord says, and in that day, remember the context, that that day is the day of God's alluring, the day when God attracts and draws. 
us to himself by the irresistible beauty of his character and his love. As we are drawn to him in the day of his alluring, God says, in that day, verse 16, you shall call me my husband, and you will no longer call me, what? My master. Do you see it? Two very different kinds of relationships. A relationship of servitude and slavery, a master-servant relationship. Do you see that in the text, yes or no? And then what, by contrast, is the other kind of relationship you could have with God? Marriage. So, so there's a whole different state of mind, a whole different framework here. So, so God says, in that day, when, when you see my love for you and the beauty of my character, you will be attracted to me and you will say, oh, my husband. That will be your perspective on our relationship. And you will no longer say, oh, my master. It's two different psychological frameworks. One is the old covenant. The other is the new. The old covenant is I do what I have to do because after all, he's God and I'm not and it's his universe and he's bigger than I am and he's got this place called hell and even the Adventist hell is hot. Even the Adventist hell is hot. I don't want to go to hell and 